Romans 3 and verse 21, I should say here that with the 21st verse in Romans 3, Paul is beginning what arguably is a new section in the argument of the gospel. You might say that up until this point in his epistle, he is laboring to establish the guilt of mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, those who knew the law, those who didn't have the law, but have a law written in their hearts, they're all guilty before God. And Paul has labored that point uh, up till now. And now his argument turns. You could say this marks the beginning of the positive exposition of the gospel when we read in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Amen. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word, for his name's sake. If you were to ask me, what book in the Bible could you take that would give you the condensed version of the entire Bible, I would say go to Romans. You have the most systematic presentation in condensed form of what the whole Bible reveals. And if you were to press me further and say, is there a section in Romans that you could say encapsulates the entire epistle or encapsulates the entire Bible? Could you give me that? And I would say, yes, I can. The verses we just read from verses 21 to 31, you could say, give you the most condensed and compressed yet comprehensive view of the gospel 
that can be found in Scripture. And it is for this reason that I highly recommend the memorizing of this section of Romans in particular. I don't know what kind of Bible memorization program uh, you assign to yourself. I hope you assign something. You need to be reading God's Word. You need to be memorizing God's Word. And especially young people whose memories are still sharp, you need to utilize this time in your life while your memory is sharp to commit many scriptures to uh, your remembrance. It gets more difficult the older you get. Uh, Don't ask me how I know that. And, uh, but I, I do. I have likened my memory at times to a post-it note without any glue on it. You make a note to yourself, you tack it somewhere, and it just flutters away. That's kind of how my memory works. And I'm afraid it, uh, it comes with uh, the passing of years. Although I've got to be careful that I don't excuse myself uh, overly much. I can still memorize too, uh, but young people especially. I don't know when it was that I was told that one of the reasons that children in school, and this pertained to the public schools, that it is in the sixth grade, however old you are in sixth grade, that they have you learn the state capitals and memorize them. Uh, in that grade level. And one of the reasons for that is because they know that the memories of people that young are very sharp. So make sure you spend time memorizing God's Word. What I want to call your attention to in the moments that remain this afternoon are verses 25 and 26 from these verses we've just read, where we read, whom God has set forth, and whom there, I should point out, is Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. If I were a Bible skeptic in search of things to criticize in God's word, if I was in search, for example, for what would uh, appear or what might appear to be a contradiction, I would probably go to that statement in verse 26 that says that God might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Hasn't Paul been laboring through the first section of this epistle to establish the truth that all men are sinners? Indeed, didn't we just read, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Paul, you're telling me that all have sinned, and yet a few verses later, you're telling me that God can justify me nevertheless. He can justify or declare me to be righteous when he's already come to the conclusion that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Well, if you understand the gospel, you understand how it is that God can do that. And it is indeed a marvel. Arguably, it reveals the genius of God, as well as his love and grace, that he can be just and the justifier of sinners that believe in Jesus Christ. One of the things that has always struck me about this epistle to the Romans is the truth that it conveys about the unity of the gospel. And by unity of the gospel, I mean that the entire Bible is the gospel. Paul dismisses the notion that there ever was or ever could be more than one gospel. You would hardly think this to be necessary until you come to learn that there have been and are in our day theological schools of thought that teach that very thing, that there have been more than one gospel. I don't know how prevalent you would find the notion today But if you can go back and find for yourself, and they're not hard to find, you can get online versions of these for free if you would want one, an original Schofield reference Bible. The best-selling Bible on the shelves in its day. And if you could go back and find the earliest edition of this study Bible, you would discover in reading the notes in that Bible that the notion was held that there were various ways throughout the history of the world in which men could be saved. These various ways are designated under uh, the heading of dispensations. Schofield divided history into seven different dispensations, or ages, you could call them. Each dispensation presented a different kind of test for man's salvation. In the Garden of Eden, the test was refraining from eating the forbidden fruit. Man failed that test. In the time of Noah, man was given the test of following his conscience. He failed that test. In the time of Moses, the test came in the form of the law. The law came by Moses. And once again, man failed. Today is the dispensation of grace in which men are saved by believing in Christ. And if my memory serves me correctly, the church will eventually fail this test also leading to the necessary action on God's part of rapturing the church out of this world. The church having failed again the test, even in the age of grace. Paul allows no place in his writings for different gospels during different dispensations. In the opening verses of this epistle, Paul refers to the gospel as that which was promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, note that again. This gospel was promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. 
What is Paul referring to when he says by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures? Well, at the time Paul wrote his letter, the New Testament had not been written. Parts of it may have been in circulation. The Gospels may have been in circulation at this time. But what Paul is referencing here is the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets. The gospel was promised by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This verse teaches us that the gospel of our day is the same gospel that was promised in the days of the Old Testament prophets. This verse, along with many others, teaches that Christ is the subject of the Old Testament as well as the New. And of course, that same truth comes out very clearly when you look in Luke chapter 24, one of my favorite chapters in the Gospels of the post-resurrection ministry of Christ. And what do you find Christ doing in that 24th chapter of Luke? But expounding to those Emmaus Road disciples how all the Bible, all the Old Testament, which was the only Bible in existence at the time Christ said that, he is expounding in all the scriptures how they point to him, to Jesus Christ. Most particularly, and this was the part they didn't understand, to the truth that he had to suffer before entering into his glory. The same truth is again brought out in uh, chapter 3 of Romans. But now, the verse we just began with, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Here again, Paul is referencing the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, that is Old Testament scripture. The righteousness of God that Paul has in view here is gospel righteousness, imputed righteousness. The righteousness that comes to us without any reference to the law, outside of our obedience or lack thereof to the law, the righteousness of God is manifested being witnessed by the law and by the prophets. Again, a clear statement of how the Old Testament brings us the gospel. You see what Paul is saying about this righteousness? He's talking about the righteousness of the gospel. He's saying that this righteousness revealed in the gospel is not a new and unique message. Now, it's certainly true that it's more fully revealed now than it was then. But the fact is that this message was witnessed by the law and by the prophets. And Paul, if you continue in Romans and you carry your study into chapter 4, Paul is going to draw from Abraham in the Old Testament, and he's going to draw from David in the Old Testament to prove the truth of the doctrine of justification by faith. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is the unifying theme throughout the entire Bible. 
If you were asked the question, what is this book about that we open each Sunday to read and preach from, the correct answer would be that this book is from cover to cover the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But not only is the theme of this book a singular theme throughout the book, but the purpose of God behind salvation is a singular purpose as well. And this brings us to the point of analysis that I want to focus on today from this section of Romans 3. You find in this section of Romans a number of points of analysis, and this is why I say you have the gospel in its most condensed and comprehensive form. In these verses, you find, for example, the universal need for the gospel. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That shows the universal need for the gospel. You also find the nature of the gospel. It is by grace through faith and not by the works of the law. Then there's the grounds upon which the gospel is based. And that is Christ, the propitiation for our sins. And let me just say here that you need to ever keep in mind a very clear distinction in your thinking between the means to salvation and the grounds for salvation. Faith is the means to salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. It is required of you, if you would be saved, that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the means to salvation. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that the means to salvation could ever constitute the grounds for your salvation. God does not give you salvation by faith as a reward for your exercising faith, as if to suggest that that deed is so meritorious that it deserves salvation. Uh, no. Christ is the grounds for salvation. Christ's atoning death is the grounds for our salvation. The merit of Christ's life and death is what procured our salvation. Faith is simply the means for appropriating what Christ has done. I believe this. I believe the gospel. I believe in Christ. Therefore, I am saved. Not because God is rewarding me for being so good as to believe something that's true. No, but it is by faith that the merit of Christ comes to me. Faith, you could say, becomes the channel through which the blessings of salvation flow. Now, the point of analysis I want to cover today pertains to God's purpose in salvation. And this is stated for us in verse 25. And to make it a point of emphasis, Paul states it again in verse 26. Look at what these verses say. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation 
through faith in his blood. And then underscore this next part of the verse because this is the purpose statement now. Why has God done this? Why has God set forth his son to be the propitiation through faith in his blood? Well, he's done it for this reason, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And lest his readers didn't get it the first time, and because it is a matter of some great importance, Paul repeats it. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Question, why did God save you? The answer, he saved me in order to declare his righteousness for the salvation of sins that are past. We don't often think of salvation in those terms, do we? We think of salvation in terms of God's love. God saved me to demonstrate his love. God saved me to show his grace. And while that's true, he does show his love. He does show his grace. He does show his mercy. But here is something that is even more foundational and fundamental, you could argue, to God's purpose. He is doing this to declare his righteousness. Now that word declare, that occurs twice in the verses we've read. That's an interesting word. It's not the common Greek word that is most often translated by the English word declare. We sometimes think of the word declare as being a synonym for the word proclaim. Perhaps one of the reasons the translators of the authorized version translate the word the way they do is because they recognize that there's a sense in which God is proclaiming or declaring his righteousness. But the word carries the literal meaning of a demonstration or a proof, if you will. The same word is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 24. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Paul exhorts the saints at Corinth, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love. Seeing this definition of the word, we can come back now to our text in Romans and interpret it to read like this. God proves his righteousness for the remission of sins. Verse 25. God proves his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Let's think for a moment then on this proof of God's righteousness. What exactly does God prove by the gospel of his Son? When you see in verse 25 its context, then you have to link it to Christ as the propitiation for our sins. It is in connection with Christ as our propitiation that Paul tells us God's righteousness has been declared or proven. He proves his righteousness, in other words, 
by Christ being the propitiation for our sins. He proves that sin deserves and receives condemnation. This is something that the sinner tries to overlook. He knows in his heart that sin deserves condemnation, but he also knows that his life is prolonged. He has not yet experienced condemnation, and so he reasons to himself that maybe God hasn't noticed my sin. Or maybe my sin isn't such a big deal after all. Does God simply tolerate sin? The unbeliever may ask himself. Maybe God marked his sin, but then forgot about him. This rationale, you know, was expressed by the psalmist when he describes the wicked. In Psalm 10 and verse 11, we read, He, the ungodly man, has said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. God doesn't make a big deal out of my sin. How do I know that? Well, he hasn't struck me down. I'm still here. He must not think my sin is such a big deal. He's forgotten. He never sees it. And sinners who labor hard to persuade themselves of God's tolerance or God's forgetfulness will certainly have no desire to see Christ dying on a cross. Here is where God proves that he is mindful of sin, that he hasn't forgotten sin. He does see our sins. He will not and he cannot merely overlook our sins. He must and will bring forth condemnation for sins. The cross of Christ proves that. But it proves something else in connection with sin also. The cross of Christ proves to us that God will never be a respecter of persons when it comes to the final judgment against sin. The sinner might hope that God will respect some things that the sinner has done which appear to be good and decent and righteous. After all, we read in Matthew 7, verse 22, how many will say to me in that day, this is Christ speaking, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Won't the Lord have respect to some that have done these works? Won't the Lord have respect to some of those works? Won't it count for anything if I can say to the Lord, Lord, look at my attendance in church. Lord, look at the fact that I was baptized. Lord, look at this, look at that. And be partial to me. The cross of Christ proves that God will have no respect to the sinner's works. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, is God's word through his prophet Ezekiel. You see, if God could be a respecter of persons, so to speak, Surely, he would respect his son. After all, Christ did many good works. 
And Christ never sinned in any way, shape, or form. His words were spoken in righteousness. His deeds were done in conformity to the law. His thoughts and motives were pure. If God would show partiality to any, surely he would show partiality to his own son. But the truth of Calvary tells us that even when one as righteous and as holy as the only begotten Son of God stood in the place of the sinner, God stayed true to himself and judged even his own son in the sinner's place. He did not impute our sins to his son and then show partiality to his son and decides that since this was his son, he would simply overlook our sins. No, rather, he judged his son, his only begotten son, when his son took our sins to himself, when our sins were imputed to Christ. So God proves that sin must and will be judged. God proves that he will be no respecter of persons when at the end of the world final judgment comes. This declaration of his righteousness, which took place on Calvary's cross, should move every sinner to flee to Christ for salvation. That should be what you've done if you never have. Flee to Christ for salvation. His judgment can count as yours if you'll but believe in him, if you'll but receive him. For not only does God, through Christ, declare the righteousness of his judgment, but he also declares and proves the righteousness of his love. This is the marvel of the gospel, you know, that God would actually love poor, vile, guilty sinners such as we are. How can you know? What makes you think you could lay claim to the love of Christ? When you consider how far short you fall of his glory and how often you transgress his law, does it not amount to uh, a statement of arrogance almost to say, I know that God loves me. Oh, it is arrogance for the Christ rejecter to think that God's general benevolence will move God to simply overlook judgment. God's benevolence, rather, serves the purpose of giving the sinner space to repent of his sins. God's purpose is clear to declare or prove his righteousness. And the cross of Christ proves that God's love will not supplant his righteousness. His love, rather, will fulfill his righteousness. And this is where we gain assurance of God's love. The consistency between his justice 
and his love. It was the love of Christ, to be sure, that brought him down from heaven. It was the Father's love for sinners that moved him to send his Son into this world. The strength of that love is proven by the fact, and I love the way this is stated in John's Gospel, chapter 13 and verse 1, where we read of Christ, having loved his own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end, or in other words, he loved them all the way to Calvary's cross. He loved us when his back was flogged. He loved us when a crown of thorns was pressed into his brow. He loved us when nails were driven into his hands and feet. He loved us when he was left to expire, suspended between heaven and earth on a cross. He loved us when a veil of darkness was drawn across the earth and his father's wrath was unleashed upon him. This was the only way, you know, that he could love us by paying the penalty we owed, by enduring the wrath we deserved. By loving us this way, he proved or declared that he would love us forever. I think it's important for Christians to see the relationship then between Christ's righteousness and his love. There is no compromising of his righteousness for him to love us. God would never compromise his own righteousness. It is perfectly consistent with that righteousness that he loves us, and it is the cross of Christ That proves that. I think it's important to note how the text says that when God set forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins, he did not set him forth with the primary aim of declaring or proving his love. Now, as I said, he certainly did prove his love. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, John 15 and verse 13. But we have to realize if we would understand his love aright, if we would love him back aright, then we have to see the subordination of his love to his righteousness. And the failure to see this has led to a lot of peculiar ideas of what Christians can do in order to love Christ in return. And this leads to my final consideration this afternoon. God's purpose in the gospel is to declare or prove his righteousness, and he does this by proving the truth of sin and judgment and salvation. If God's purpose is to declare or prove his righteousness and the salvation of sinners, then it must become our purpose as saved sinners to declare or prove his righteousness as well. In other words, we must align ourselves with God's stated purpose in salvation. And how do we do this? We begin very simply by striving to measure up to the righteousness that's been won for us and imputed to us. Christ's atoning death, you see, freed us from sin's condemnation and sin's dominion. 
When ye were the servants of sin, Paul writes, chapter 6, verse 20, ye were free from righteousness. The word free signifying that we were completely outside the realm of righteousness. Righteousness was like a locked vault to us. We had no access to it. But we had plenty of access to sin through the gospel, we've been set free from sin. And so Paul says two verses later in Romans 6 in verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Sin shall not have dominion over you, he says earlier in chapter 6, verse 14. And because sin shall not have dominion over you, you are not to let sin have dominion over you. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof, verse 12. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. That's how we align ourselves with God's aim and God's purpose. In obedience to the gospel, we count or we reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6 and verse 11. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament, especially since it expresses so clearly what I take to be the essence of gospel obedience. The word reckon is the same word for impute in chapter 4. And so just as God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, we are to impute or count ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. To some, this might seem like trying to psych ourselves into living in a world of make-believe. After all, we know, don't we? We're not dead to sin. We must sadly acknowledge that we're fully aware that sin seems to be alive and well. But counting myself to be dead to it, am I to pretend I'm dead to it when really I'm not? Are we to pretend that we're alive to God, even though in our experience we go through times when we seem to be dead to God, but alive to sin? Well, let's mark it down here that God does not call us to live in a realm of make-believe. There's a term for people who do that. The term is called hypocrisy, pretending I'm something that I'm not. He calls on us, rather, to see our position in Christ. Positionally, when he died, we died with him. Positionally, we were buried with him when he was buried. 
positionally, we rose when he rose, and today we are joined to him in union to him, and therefore there is a sense in which we are seated upon the throne with him. These are not then just far-fetched ideals that we strive for as the people of God. God, who is righteous in all his actions and in all his words and thoughts, views us this way as being dead to sin and alive to him through Christ. It was his purpose to fulfill all righteousness in the life and death of his son, and because we're joined to his son, he sees our every obligation to the law as having been met in his son. So we align ourselves with his purpose by striving for the things he has freely given and we freely received. I strive for righteousness because I've been given righteousness. I strive to be holy because positionally I've been made holy. And by this striving, we prove or we declare his righteousness. I love the way this is expressed in the last verse in chapter 3 in Romans. Do we then make void the law through faith? Paul's critics would argue, yeah, you certainly do. You, you, you've made the law null and void by saying you can be saved fully and freely. Paul uh, rebuffs the charge. God forbid, yea, we establish the law. That's a study in its own. Maybe we'll come back to it. We've touched on it in days gone by. But we establish the law. Not by perfect obedience to it, but by a perfect Savior who rendered perfect obedience to it and by our striving to render obedience to it because of our union with Him. And then finally, we must ever endeavor to aim for his glory in all that we do in making his name known. I feel many churches have lost sight of this, and while they may be well-meaning in their outreach efforts, they seek to justify too much sin or too much worldliness with the rationale that God's love compels them. God's love has really been made an excuse for a lot of crazy notions in evangelism. If you read the stories of some of the megachurches, I don't know necessarily that they're all like this, but a number which have become so large so fast, they make the love of God the justification for the gimmicks they employ and the schemes they devise. It's because of Christ's love for sinners, they'll say, that we put on a show. If it will lead to salvation, then bring on the clowns and the acrobats and the side shows. And uh, let me, as the pastor, um, stand in the box that people can throw um, balls at to see if they can dunk me in the tank, so to speak. All in the name of evangelism, the Apostle Paul calls for something higher 
when he writes in, Rome, in Philippians, rather, chapter 1, verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. What kind of conversation or conduct is becoming to the gospel? Holy lives are becoming to the gospel. Righteousness is becoming to the gospel. Reverence or godly fear is becoming to the gospel. I like what we read in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, where we read, He has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's how we align ourselves with God's aim in the gospel. By striving for righteousness, doing justly, as the text says in Micah 6 and verse 8, not failing to regard reverence or righteousness because of a love for mercy, but rather aligning ourselves with righteousness because we love mercy. And in that righteousness and mercy, we walk humbly with our God. This kind of walk, more than anything else, I think equips us to serve the Lord we love. We recognize that boasting is excluded I don't have anything on anyone in terms of personal righteousness. I too am a sinner, lost and undone, condemned if God were to measure me by what I am in and of myself. But I know this and I face this and I admit this. And then I flee to Christ and receive Him. So I walk humbly with the God I love. And so I trust today that God will impress upon your hearts the reason that he saved you. He had an aim to glorify himself in the declaration or the proof of his righteousness. How we marvel to contemplate the glory of his grace in the fulfillment of his righteousness through Jesus Christ. I trust that the Lord will so move on your hearts that you'll find the enabling grace to align yourselves with his purpose in your salvation. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank Thee for the genius of the gospel. We thank Thee, Lord, for the way Thou wert able to devise a plan that would enable Thy love to be manifested without any compromise to Thy character or to Thy righteousness. We pray, O Lord, that Thou wilt indeed help us to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, and thereby align ourselves with his purpose for saving us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.